I, I just want to say, you know, greetings to the Dura sisters. Oh my uh, God! <laughs> I hope they're I hope they're feeling okay. Uh, yeah, comfortable. They're they're, they're fine. Uh, they got a little sweaty this week. <laughs> Welcome to Star's End, a Foundation podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the Foundation universe, both the classic novels written by Isaac Asimov and the upcoming adaptation from Apple Plus. I'm John, and I'm your co-host. My name is Dan, and I'm also your co-host. We're going to read Asimov's novels together and talk about how they look from a 21st century perspective. We'll also talk about show news as it comes out, and when season one airs later in 2021, we'll talk about each episode. And I'm Joseph. All three of us are middle-aged white guys who read the Foundation novels as teens, but we're not here to gatekeep, just the opposite. After all, Foundation is about how societies must evolve or die, and we want to help hand this story off to a younger and more diverse families. Today's Apple TV Plus Minute is more like a second, which is just that we have a date. At long last, we have a date for the premiere of our series, which is September something. So it's not really a date. Right. (laughs) But it's a month. John here with a quick editor's note. Within hours of recording this podcast, we discovered that there is in fact a date, September 24th, 2021. So we're all looking forward to that. And now I'll return you back to the actual recorded podcast. Do we know whether they're going to dump the whole thing all at once and let us binge it? Or are they going to go like weekly, like seems to be the fashion? I I think I would bet they're going to go weekly. It seems I actually... I, I signed up for the service recently. I've been watching a little bit of some of their other shows, uh, and it seems like they like to drop things week by week. I think we should prepare for a weekly a weekly podcast on the subject. Well, yeah, it's better for us if they go week week to week because then we can we can keep the podcast thing going. So that's uh, that's good. I think we might have to start reading faster if we're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know. I mean, I think that I think we have time. I mean, if we're gonna do. Spoiler alert, half of Foundation and Empire today and the the other half in our next episode. We're 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 on track. I, I think that um, when we get to the sequels and the prequels, we'll probably get through them actually pretty quickly. So why don't we move ahead to the trivia section? Dan, I believe you have some questions for Joseph this week. Yes. So I wanted to change things up a little bit because it just so happens that my very bright 18-year-old daughter picked up a copy of Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare. And so I thought I would like to uh, give you a a few quotations from Asimov's assessment of the Shakespeare plays. And I will ask you to guess which play he is describing in each. The funny thing about his uh, description of Shakespeare is that he doesn't spend a lot of time commenting on the literary aspects of the plays. He gives some glosses on various lines, but most, uh, a lot of the time is spent talking about the historical background. Mm. Not, not the historical background of Shakespeare's time, but the historical background of any play which is, has some kind of connection to history. 
whether or not the, that background is related to what Shakespeare is talking about or not. <laughs> so it, so it, an area that he was more comfortable in or? I, I suppose so. I mean, it's, you know, obviously he, he has some kind of interest in history. Or, or I guess we wouldn't be here. Yeah, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. People want to know what Asimov thinks about things. You know. <laughs> so, I, if it's okay with you, I have three questions for you. Each question, I will read you uh, a, a short text from his commentary, and you guess what play it is. Each one is worth two points. We'll okay. See how you do. All right. So, quote number one: The first Plutarchian play written by Shakespeare concerned the time four and a half centuries after Coriolanus. Rome had survived the Gallic sack and the onslaught of Hannibal of Carthage. It had spread itself west and east over the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and now all those shores were either Roman territory or under the control of some Roman puppet king. But Rome's troubles were coming from within. There was no longer any serious question of conquest from without. That was impossible and would remain impossible for several centuries. Now, however, there had come an inner struggle. For half a century, there had been a sputtering string of conflicts between generals for control, and the play opens when the conflict seems to have been decided. Okay, so I only know of one Shakespeare play that was set in the Roman Empire times, so I'm going to guess Julius Caesar. And you are correct. <laughs> All right, two points for correct. Joseph. Julius Caesar. Very nice. And then and just to remind everyone, you were three and two thirds out of six the first time around. So you're, you're pretty well positioned here. So uh, yeah. two points for that one. Okay. Credit on these. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that one would, you'd probably get that. I, you know, I thought maybe I could fool you into saying Antony and Cleopatra or something, but, but we'll okay. see. We'll see. Uh, we'll nope. see. The next one is a, maybe a little bit harder. Maybe not. Okay. Ready for number two. Yes. At the time Geoffrey wrote, the Celtic people of Britain had been driven back steadily for over six centuries and were now confined to Wales. Even there, Anglo-Norman influence was gradually becoming paramount, and indeed half a century later, England carried through the final and permanent conquest of Wales. There is always interest in what seems to be a dying culture, and Geoffrey, who lived on the Welsh border and was probably of Celtic descent, possessed that interest. Perhaps it was only natural for him to want to compensate for its dwindling present by emphasizing its great past. To do this, he made heavy use of legendary and mythic material, producing a history that is very largely fictional, although it was taken for sober fact through the Middle Ages. If there are grains of truth lying behind Jeffrey's fantasies, we can no longer be sure what they are. Okay, so... One of the plays about the British kings, probably. Yes. Guessing the Henrys are too late. Good guess. Yes. Oh, I'm going to say William II. I'm sorry. No. Assuming that's a play. I don't even think that's a Shakespeare <laughs> play, don't. Joseph. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, he wrote so many. It's like me, but it's too Scottish. It's they, not, uh, he wrote so many of them. Like, there must have been some... <laughs> <laughs> someplace somewhere or other about all the English kings. Um, no. So it's, it's a reasonable guess. Uh, just, I, I'm glad you went early, but this is actually uh, King Lear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're really talking about like the early mythic kind of dark ages version of Britain there. My heads were in the, we're in the, the historical plays, not the tragedies. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
totally understandable. I'm a tricky guy. <laughs> okay, last one. This, last one. This, and I, I'll have to warn you that this one is not a commonly performed play, so it's a little off the beaten track in case that helps. So if you'd like, you should call up a list of, <laughs> a list of Shakespeare plays <laughs> on Wikipedia. I'll, I'll let you have the cheat sheet for this one. Okay, number three. About a century and three quarters after the founding of the Seleucid Empire, almost all the Eastern provinces had fallen away and come under the rule of native princes. What was left of the Greek kingdom was concentrated in the westernmost provinces and what had been the Seleucid Empire came more and more to be called simply Syria. Despite the vicissitudes of the empire, however, Antioch continued to grow and became a great metropolis. In the days of the Roman Empire, when Rome had finally absorbed the last remnant of the Seleucid realm, Antioch was the third largest city of the empire. Only Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt were larger. The question is now, which monarch is referred to by Gower as Antiochus the Great? Well, let's see. So now I'm looking at, I'm looking at a list. <laughs> and <laughs> when you said it isn't a very... Uh, wasn't a very frequently performed play. I'm good. Well, the only one of those I can name off the top of my head is Coriolanus. You've, you've, you've given me the cheat sheet. I'm glancing over the cheat sheet. So it's not Hamlet. I know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ham Hamlet. Hamlet, Ham Prince of Denmark? No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Denmark is kind of close to Antioch. I don't Syria, yeah. <laughs> I really have no idea. I'm going to guess Titus. What's your guess? Uh, Titus Andron um, Andronicus. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. No. The, the correct answer is Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Oh, well, which, I would like, not even have said that was who, a Shakespeare play. Who, who, knew, <laughs> who knew? Maybe by this time it's been removed from the Shakespeare canon by some by scholars. I don't know. I'm not a Shakespearean. Uh, like, who has ever heard of this play? I have not. And I. I, no. I I didn't even my my I didn't even hit that looking at this list. It's on this list. You know, the thing is though, it's in Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare. And as we all know, Asimov is the master of canonicity for everything. So he says it's there. So I, I guess we've got to believe him. Yeah, and I, I believe he read it too. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that too. So anyway, uh you gave a valiant try, uh, but I, I'm afraid your final total is only two points. That's okay. That's okay. Um, it's, it's more than I thought I would get. So <laughs> I, I, I had fun just looking through this book just because, you know, the same language that he uses in this kind of description, you guys probably hear it. He talks, this is the same kind of language that comes up in the foundation books as well. So I just thought it was kind of neat that he, he sort of the same kind of rhetoric he deploys within his own novels. And then whenever he's, he's talking about, things that are probably not that relevant to Shakespeare, but it just seems an abiding interest of his. All right. Now, Joseph put out a, um, a blog post about, well, ultimately about archive.org. And I thought it was very interesting. And I, I was wondering if you want to just spend a minute or two talking about that. Uh, well, sure. One of, one of the things when we were preparing for the podcast, one of the things that really caught my interest and intrigued me was the fact that I could, for the first time, look at you know, the original publications of these stories, uh, which were, were, were all in John W. Campbell's Astounding Science Fiction. And, 
you know, this remarkable thing that we never had before is that we have archive.org and so much of this stuff is now um, just freely available. In fact, you can you can download all of these issues. I've downloaded most of them and put them on my uh, my iPad. So I've got to kind of answer my question. I was wondering how different these are. But, you know, we now know that, or at least now I know that Asimov is much more about writing than he is about rewriting. He gets pretty, he uh, seems like he would get pretty cranky when, when he had to rewrite something. Um, when I was going over today's reading, I was um, actually was listening to the audio book and I pulled out, I, I pulled out one of those issues and it's, it's word for word the same. So I think that there's not a lot of difference between the two of them. But they're fun to look back. I love looking at the uh, I love looking at the artwork that you get with the stories. You know, I enjoyed that. I wanted to share it with everybody, and then probably going forward, I'll just be taking them. I'll I'll be doing this, but I'll be going story by story um, as we're building up for it. Supplementing what I was doing is kind of like coming attraction posts. Right. No, I really liked the post, and uh, I'm sure I'll wind up spending a lot of time on archive. dot org. Is it? Uh, it's archive.org yes yeah. and for those who want to look at the the blog post that is on our uh, our page right stars yes. in podcast.blogpost.wordpress.com uh, right at wordpress.com yes stars in podcast.wordpress.com great great so this week we want to talk about foundation and empire maybe we ought to just do a brief kind of recap of our story so far um, I'll just do a couple of minutes on that, just uh, the, from the beginning of the first book, Foundation. Last time we reached the end of it, and what we got in Foundation was an introduction to the Galactic Empire that was on the verge of falling, the scientist Harry Seldon developing the new science of psychohistory, which uh, enables him to forecast the future of history based on the behavior of billions and billions of people. And he forecasts that the empire is in the process of falling, that it will inevitably fall, and that there's going to be a 30,000 year period of anarchy. He can shorten it to just a thousand years by establishing two foundations uh, at what he says are opposite ends of the galaxy, although that remains cryptic throughout the entire book, because all we see is the one foundation, the, the, uh, the scientists who are sent out to, to compile an encyclopedia of all human knowledge, the Encyclopedia Galactica. Uh, but of course, that turns out just to be a cover story. They're really there to be the kernel of a second empire in a thousand years. And then we see a series of crises that they go through with the surrounding kingdoms, um, with their attempt to push themselves out in, uh, to, to start building a little bit of, a, of an empire uh, with their technology at first with their religion alongside it. Eventually their religion is dropped and we see them move from this scientific outpost to this religious technical center to just the technical. And then just at the end of foundation, we see the rise of the merchant princes in the form of Hober Mallow, who has taken economic control of the foundation Really, the story ends there with the foundation well on its way to developing a new empire. And the, the last thing that we see at the end of foundation is an encounter with the remnants of the old empire. And now in foundation and empire, there's going to be a direct clash between that remnant, which is still pretty extensive and still pretty strong, still probably physically stronger than the foundation itself, even if not as technically advanced 
And now we're going to see for the first time actual conflict between between the remnants of the empire and the the developing foundation. I think we're gonna we're gonna take a slightly different approach here. We're gonna maybe have a little bit less detailed analysis of the actual events of the story and and try to get into the the discussion of it as we go. So uh, we do have a few a few readings actually that we're gonna do. And I think Dan, the first one is is right at the opening where once again, we have an entry from the Encyclopedia Galactica. Which is, as our listeners know, my favorite. <laughs> I live for the Encyclopedia Galactica. And so you are an encyclopedia man. You would be, you would be on that encyclopedia team if you were living on the- Yeah, I wanna, I, my, that's my long-term career goal is to get on the, uh, the, the editorial board. Of the Encyclopedia Galactica. Of the Encyclopedia Galactica. I mean, it, very long-term, like, but yeah. 50,000 so, years or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so we start with the entry. Uh, Bell Rios. In his relatively short career, Rios earned the title of the last of the Imperials and earned it well. A study of his campaigns reveals him to be the equal of uh, Purifoy in strategic ability and his superior, perhaps, in his ability to handle men. That he was born in the days of the decline of empire made it all but impossible for him to equal Purifoy's record as a conqueror. Yet he had his chance when the first of the empire's generals to do so, he faced the foundation squarely, ominous ellipses to end. Dun, dun, okay. dun. Da, da, da. All right, so what, what caught my eye with this is, I don't know if I made this connection when I was reading this while I was getting my pseudo-classical education of the, as a teen, but rereading it now, the, the name Bel Rios reminded me of another name, uh, Belisarius, who is a major general under the reign of Justinian the Great in the sixth century of uh, the, the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, reading this opening intro, the phrase, the last of the Imperials, immediately sealed the deal for me that that was meant to be a reference because Belisarius is called the la the last of the Romans in classical sources often. And I thinking about this in that connection, it kind of brought something home for me that this, I mean, we, we've known all along that he's sort of remolding the history of the fall of Rome and then the eventual rise of, of modern Europe as a way of thinking through these historical forces. But this is, I, I think the only bit of the series in which we have an explicit kind of comparison called out to, to a particular person from history. And that just really caught my eye. So I, I did a little Googling. Wikipedia, you know, I'm an encyclopedia man and Wikipedia knew this all before me. So Wikipedia, interestingly, you know, points out that they're like about a decade before the publication of the novel, maybe about a few five years before the publication of the short story, there had been a couple of novels about Belisarius, uh, one by Robert Graves, who's more famous for I Claudius, and then interestingly, one by L. Sprague de Camp mm. uh, in 41, who he published a book called Less Darkness Fall, which is kind of, I guess, it, it in some ways it's like uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, but is has been retroactively nonetheless named as like one of the founding books of alternate history sci-fi. This is something that intrigued me. I, I have tried to find a copy of both of those books. I'm going to have to like 
look on look on uh, interlibrary loan because I think they're all out of print. But you know, I think that this is fascinating. Like Asimov is setting this in in a in ways that probably would have been immediately recognizable not just to classicists but to other sci-fi fans of the age like that he's he's invoking someone from uh, a recent uh, well-recognized novel and, and taking putting his own spin on things i guess my question for for you guys is does does it do you think it changes anything if we you know have a a, a, like a much more specific reference to a historical personage here? Does it set our expectations any different? And if if not, why why do you think you would go with like an identifiable kind of illusion like this in a way he didn't he didn't feel necessary to do it for the other earlier stories? I mean, it could be something just as simple as him putting a hook into that decline and fall story. I, I don't think the details of Rioz's campaign are really all that similar to Belisarius. And so I think sometimes he did like to do things with names sometimes that either as a joke or just as a, a kind of a hook and then kind of move on from there and make the story his own. The example I give is somebody, somebody posted something on Twitter about, it was in our, you know, in our, in our account about your favorite Asimov story. Mm -hmm. And, and I mentioned Shah Guido G, which was a, a joke story that he wrote. Uh, it's a story in which there's a terrible pun at the end of the story. This was just the upshot of the story. I won't go through the details because it would take too long. And then he said in the, in the notes, in the compilation, somebody accused him of, of saying, well, that was just a big old shaggy dog story. And he said, well, if you look at the title of the story, Shah Guido G, and just change the spacing a little bit, you'll see that <laughs> maybe I knew that it was a shaggy dog story. So I think maybe it could be just something as simple as that, just a, yeah, a, yeah. a hook that he liked to put into the into the decline and fall story. It could yeah. be. I mean, I get the sense that he, I mean, he is, he is kind of a joke, like a jokester, right? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, Put it past him that it could be something as simple as that. So we are introduced to Rios and yeah. his desire to be a conqueror. He meets with Dusem Bar, who is the, or that's the way I've, I don't know if anybody has a different pronunciation of that name, but I always called it Dusem with a soft C. Dusem Bar, who was the son of Onam Bar, who we met uh, in the Hober Mallow story. Uh, Onam Bar uh, uh, predicted that Dusem would be uh, at some point in the near future murdering the current viceroy. And in fact, we find out from Dusem Bar that he carried that out, uh, that Rios knows about it. And Rios wants information about the foundation. He's heard about these magicians. There's these stories that have gone around and he, he wants an enemy. He wants someone to fight and he's loyal to the empire. He wants to do it on behalf of the empire, but he also wants to be a conqueror. He's ambitious. We also find it interestingly, we find out, and I'm not sure if maybe Asimov did this just to establish Rios's not so likable bona fides. But one of the things that he does in order to get Barr to cooperate is to threaten his family. I, I think maybe that was there to make us not like Rios that much because Rios is sort of a likable character. Mm -hmm. But then he, he also is, you know, he's willing to play hardball. He's willing to threaten Dusan Barr's family. You know, he says, I wouldn't be so stupid as to just, you know, attack you because I know you don't care, but you have children, you have grandchildren, and you know, I know where they live. And that, I thought that was 
it was pretty aggressive. You know, I, I think you could be right on that, the, trying to make him make him unlikable in that regard. Um, because, you know, I think if there's some place when which he's talking to, to Dusenbar and he says, well, you know, you wouldn't want the empire to, to fall into darkness and be served by chaos and be replaced by chaos, would you? And that's, you know, that's the same rhetoric that, that Harry Seldon uses in justifying the foundation earlier. Um, and so he, he's sort of on to something and he's doing, he's acting in the name of the same kind of mission that the foundation is supposed to. You're, I think you're right. It's not automatically clear that if we're rooting for civilization, we should be necessarily rooting against Del Rio's uh, other, other than things like that. Well, but if we're so the thing, the thing that um, I'm kind of thinking of here is that the the Dusum Bar is basically the exposition machine of the story, mm-hmm. right? And so I mean, the, and of course, it, within these, exposition machine means main character, right? And so <laughs> he needed him to kind of be allied with the you know foundation pretty early on. He's you know talking up psychohistory and. Um, you know, but I think he wanted him to be aligned with the uh, with the the foundation by the end of the story, and this certainly would serve that purpose. Absolutely, absolutely. We definitely needed the exposition machine for those who maybe hadn't read Foundation. They needed to hear the story so far, and Dusenbar provides that in his explanation to Rios what his forty years of research have have revealed. All all he needed to do was go back and read Foundation, but instead he he would spend forty years combing through libraries. Moving the story on, we meet the Emperor, Cleon II, who seems to have uh, space gout, some sort of uh, undiagnosable illness. And of course, uh, uh, Asimov takes the opportunity to point out that none of the doctors can come up with anything new if they haven't seen it before, because that's part of the decadence of the empire is that they just have their old books. And you know, if it's not in the old books, there's nothing they can do about it. We meet him, we meet his, his vizier, Broderick, who is sort of a classic mustache twirling evil second banana to the emperor who, uh, you know, is described as somebody who better have the fastest ship in the empire the day the emperor dies because he's going to need it. Otherwise it'll be, what, what did he put, who's going to put him in the, the, the atomizer or something, you know, he's going to be vaporized the day after Cleon dies if he doesn't uh, get out of there in a hurry. And we also uh, subsequently meet our hero from the foundation Lathan Devers, which, as Joseph pointed out, that was a name that Asimov originally used in a previous story. But then when it got published in the novel form, I guess he 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 put that name into this character. Um, And Devers is a traitor who is uh, ultimately captured by Rios. And he is put into a cell for some reason with Dusenbar, who is brought out by uh, by General Rios to, to to give him help in fighting the foundation. Uh, we also find out that uh, Rios has visited the foundation and was interviewed by various uh, plutocrats living there who don't really know what to make of him. And um, he has seen the foundation. He's seen what they're like and has further convinced himself that they're a serious enemy to be fought. One of the things I think, though, that that this this starts to point out, and we see this throughout this story, and I'm going to throw this out there for you guys as well, is that one of the complaints we've had about Asimov throughout is dialogue versus action. We've seen an awful lot of dialogue, not an awful lot of action. 
And throughout this story, almost all of the action, there's plenty of action. It almost all takes place off stage. Mm -hmm. We'll get to more of that later. But all of all of Rioza's trip to the foundation, being captured, losing a, a, a scout ship that he still hasn't recovered, his escape from the foundation, whatever it is, all of it takes place off stage. And we get right back to Asimov's bread and butter dialogue. Um, I don't know if you if you guys noticed the same thing I did. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it reminded me of Balance of Terror, which I grew up thinking this is a great space battle, and it still is a great space battle, but you never see the space battle. It's all internal to the ships, and it's just it's the same sort of thing. But um, that reminded me of the funniest thing in the entire uh, the entire story was um, when Rios first meets Dusum Bar. Um, at some point, he's like, well, you better get some more tea and sit down because I'm about to make a speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, this is a note for all of us. Get, get a cup of tea because here comes, here comes the speech. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like, like Asimov had to warn us that a speech was coming. It was sort of funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I largely agree. I mean, we do get a couple moments of hand to hand combat with <laughs> bot <laughs> banging banging him on the skull and then and then we get uh, a blaster fire uh on on trantor uh briefly uh but uh you of course you're right like in general there's there's the atmosphere of action that and and that's kind of the point like uh, like we're as the story progresses we are le we're led up to the final conclusion that they've been running around for nothing but there, right. there's there's lots of sound and fury right so but that's kind of almost the way we experience it as well is is sort of lots of implied action which is it's not apparent on the pages of the story and it's ultimately not apparent in the way history plays out either right so i wanted to uh, i actually wanted to get to a reading there's a conversation between rios and Dusan bar uh that sets all of this up um i think that they're Rios has had Barr brought out uh, to the battlefield, effectively. Uh, Rios has a base on a on a hollowed out moon or an asteroid or a planetoid or something. And he has and they, they discuss the whole situation with the foundation. And Rios is telling him, I'm going to beat the foundation and and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, and Barr is unmoved by all of it. He has become convinced that whatever Rios does is going to be ineffectual because of the plan that that Barr is aware of. And that psychohistory is going to make him lose. And they have a discussion. I'm going to read a little bit of it. They've been discussing it back and forth. I don't want to go all the way to the beginning. It's rather long. So Barr is saying, it was that psychohistory which Selden and the group he worked with applied in full force to the establishment of the foundation. The place, time, and conditions all conspire mathematically and so inevitably to the development of a second galactic empire. Rios's voice trembled with indignation. You mean that this art of his predicts that I would attack the foundation and lose such and such a battle for such and such a reason? You are trying to say that I am a silly robot following a predetermined course into destruction. No, replied the old patrician sharply. I have already said that the science had nothing to do with individual actions. It is the vaster background that has been foreseen. Then we stand clasped tightly in the forcing hand of the goddess of historical necessity. Of psycho-historical necessity, prompted Barr softly. And if I exercise my prerogative free will, if I choose to attack next year or not to attack at all, how pliable is the goddess? How resourceful? Barr shrugged. Attack now or never, with a single ship or all the force in the empire, by military force or economic pressure, by candid declaration of war or by treacherous ambush. Do whatever you wish in your fullest exercise of free will. You will still lose. 
because of Harry Seldon's dead hand, because of the dead hand of the mathematics of human behavior that can neither be stopped, swerved, nor delayed. The two faced each other in deadlock until the general stepped back. He said simply, I'll take that challenge. It's a dead hand against a living will. So that sets up the story, right? The, the great man versus history. Um, and Barr is absolutely convinced no matter what you do, you are going to lose, no matter how you approach this. Um, and this, this certainly comes to the, uh, you know, the question that we've addressed a number of times about forced choices. It doesn't matter here. They're, they're, you know, we don't need forced choices here. Whatever you do, you're going to lose. And Rios is, is absolutely ready to take that challenge and, and try to fight it. And, you know, I think of the whole series, this story makes the case most strongly and most clearly. As I mean, as I just like, there's so much action and ultimately the action doesn't matter. And there really is the deus ex machina or the Harry Seldon ex machina just comes, comes down and, you know, clears the battlefield in a way that, you know, if he tried to do that with every single story, it would get so tedious, right? I mean, you would know, you would know what that's what's coming. And I, I, I guess maybe he, that's why he hasn't tried that before, but I'm glad that he did it. He put it that way in at least one, one story where it's the case is made absolutely clearly that the, the great man is irrelevant. Yeah, and I wonder to what extent he was self-consciously making that argument. I mean, he'd probably over the, you know, three or four years these stories have been running, you've been hearing comments like we had been making about the, um, you know, about the disconnect between the, um, what we seem to be reading and the whole premise of psychohistory. Uh, psycho uh, psycho if, if he was trying to do that, I think he did the, this ex extremely well. Let me um, slide my passage in here and then I okay. follow it up a bit. This so what happens first, before you do that, just tell us what happens in the story in between what I just read and what you're about to read. What happens in between the um, Rios tries to get help from the emperor, initially doesn't get it, although um, Roderick was, uh, was sent out to advise him, but he starts taking action against the foundation and it seems to be going beautifully well. He's talking about how in intelligently he's strategically taking over systems and how he's can able to be able to hold them with a minimal force and it really looks like he is on the path to victory and then bar and devers are hostages and they keep trying to get a leg up to um, help the foundation and to, to slow down rios and nothing nothing has seemed to work Eventually, they think they can turn Roderick against him. That kind of backfires. And as they're discovering that it backfires, they have a chance to get the drop on Rios. They hit him over the head with a snow globe or something, and then they manage to escape. Right. And a key, before you read, I mean, a key point is that they had the plan to try to bribe Roderick. Instead, Roderick bribes them. And so now they have 100,000 credits backed by Broderick's estate. So that's kind of an important note. This is Devers and, and Barr on Devers' ship. He sat back and loosened his collar with a jerk. I don't know what those Empire boys have done here. I think some of the gaps are out of alignment. I take it then that you're trying to get to the Foundation. 
I'm calling the association or trying to. The association, who are they? Association of Independent Traders. Never heard of it, huh? Well, you're not alone. We haven't made our splash yet. For a while, there was a silence that centered about the unresponsive reception indicator, and Barr said, are you within range? I don't know. I haven't but a small notion where we are going by dead reckoning. That's why I have to use directional control. It could take years, you know. Might it? Barr pointed. Endeavors jumped and adjusted his earphones. Within a little murky sphere, there was a tiny glowing whiteness. For half an hour, Devers nursed the fragile grouping thread of communication that reached through hyperspace to connect two points that laggard life would take 500 years to bind together. He then sat back hopelessly. He looked up and shoved his earphones back. I suppose you want to know what I got out of the association. If it isn't secret, Devers shook his head. Not to you. What Rio said was true. About the offer of tribute? Uh-huh. They offered it and he had it refused. Um, things are bad. And there's fighting the outer sons of Loris. Loris is close to the foundation? Huh. Oh, you wouldn't know. It's one of the original four kingdoms. You might call it part of the inner line of defense. That's not the worst. They've been fighting large ships previously never encountered, which means Rios wasn't giving us the works. He has received more ships. Roderick has switched sides. And I have messed things up. And, and it's interesting because the a thing that I really liked about this story is a thing that I generally do not like and I'll refer back to another star trek episode turnabout intruder is a terrible episode and it's terrible because the only real actor in the story is um though hell i'm blanking on her name <laughs> um the uh the woman who's who's uh taken over kirk's body Right, right. You know, Spock mm -hmm. seems to think, well, there's something that's, that's odd going on here. I better do something about it. And then she she arrests him and he's on trial. And Scotty and, and McCoy get together like, well, there's something odd going on. Maybe we should maybe we should try to do something about it. And she arrests them. And, and so the, the characters never get to do anything. Everything just happens to them. And that usually is a terrible way to write a story. But here, because of the resolution, it works. Right. They keep trying to do things. They keep trying to help the, the foundation and it all just evaporates. It, it, it frequently goes in the opposite way that they, they wanted it to. You know, it, it bears out the, uh, the usefulness, the utility of psychohistory, which we had been questioning up to this point in a way that was like very clear and very well done. And, I, and so that aspect of the story, I think, is really what drives the point home. Yeah. So Devers and Barr decide to go to Trantor and try to bribe their way to an audience with the emperor and try to poison his mind against Lord Broderick mm -hmm. with the hundred thousand credits that they have. And Barr says, you know, there's no point in doing that, but there really isn't any choice. And Devers is pretty much has decided that's what he's going to do. So they go and they do it. And that's what we see them doing. We see them visiting Trantor and trying to bribe their way through officials and ultimately getting caught <laughs> and uh, uh, having to blast their way out in a rare moment of action. They do uh, They do shoot somebody and run away, and they discover as they're leaving that it didn't matter, that the whole thing has already come to an end, that the emperor became suspicious of Broderick. He recalled Broderick and Rios. They had a show trial and executed them, and the threat is over. And so, so psychohistory wins again. And, you know, at the end, you have a sort of a Star Wars like story where everybody's getting medals and Dusan <laughs> Bar is now Lord Bar. And, uh, and there's a conversation, you know, about what happened. 
Um, actually, there is a, a further piece that I, I think is interesting at the end there where uh, Barr kind of runs through the scenarios. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. He's, he's talking with one of the plutocrats, Forel, and, and Devers, and he's trying to explain the situation to them as he sees it. And he says, look at the situation. A weak general could never have endangered us, obviously. A strong general during the time of a weak emperor would never have endangered us either, for he would have turned his arms toward a much more fruitful target. Events have shown that three-fourths of the emperors of the last two centuries were rebel generals and rebel viceroys before they were emperors. So it is only the combination of strong emperor and strong general that can harm the foundation, for a strong emperor cannot be dethroned easily, and a strong general is forced to turn outwards past the frontiers. But what keeps the emperor strong? What kept Cleon strong? It's obvious. He is strong because he permits no strong subjects. A courtier who becomes too rich or a general who becomes too popular is dangerous. All the recent uh, history of the empire proves that, to any proves that to any emperor intelligent enough to be strong. So those are the all of the possible scenarios that you can think of. The foundation wins, and that is the, that is really the key to this to this whole uh, to this whole story. Yeah, and actually that, that that that's a great passage because I think that really puts a fine point on it. Because earlier in and you know early we earlier we see Barr talking about talking about psychohistory and he's you know he seems to have faith in it but he's also saying things like well you know I really don't know what I'm talking about but or I can't do the math mathematics of, of it but and and um, and that's that's counterpointed with the we we see the one scene with the the council of the foundation right. and referring to psychohistory in very religious kind of terms to the point where I think they even they, they say something like you know psycho or Selden helps those who help themselves or, or, or yeah. psycho helps those who help themselves and so that finally here there's this rational basis that we we didn't see nearly so strongly earlier in the story and of course to spoil again what we're about to see in the next story is that asimov in the true tradition of fine storytelling is going to turn all of this on its head when we see the character of the mule uh, who is a mutant and so is not quite 100 percent human and is not accountable to psychohistory and he's going to turn the plan on its head and we're going to we're going to see that next time and, and that's actually a point that i think asimov felt was important one of the one of the questions that he was often asked was why are there no aliens in his galaxy here and he felt that it would have complicated psychohistory too much to try to account for not just human behavior but also alien behavior and so he decided he had to have a galaxy with no aliens at all in it so that psychohistory would work i i i wish that all scientific problems were that easy that you know you don't you don't like the reality you just remove remove the factors that you dislike it would make progress so much easier that would be much easier <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think I'm looking forward to uh, to getting the mule. I, everyone always looks forward to the mule. But um, I think that the like the combination of Bell Rios together with the mule in this one volume really is a nice kind of tension, just because it, it does put the two opposite sides of the of the issue right up against each other. There is no great man. Well, maybe no, there is. And so I'll, I'll be looking forward to our discussion next week. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I, I do like the uh, the second half, although we are going to encounter uh, uh, Asimov's just terrible approach to women. Uh, so for the first time, 
oh, that's, that's going to happen. Counted it a bit in um, in the last story. That's true, a little bit. But now we're going to have characters that are, you know, we're going to have a major character that is a woman, and we're going to, we're just going to have to deal with it. So we can we can grit our teeth and get ready to bear all of that. But yeah, I mean, I, and I think that this juxtaposition of these two stories, the first story saying, ah, psychohistory wins always. And then, no, it doesn't <laughs> immediately afterwards. Uh, I mean, it's what makes this book the best of the series, in my opinion. This is really the climax of the of the series. The, the third book, while still interesting, I don't think it has that kind of that kind of juxtaposition. It definitely does not have the, you know, those two opposite messages that the twists and turns that Foundation Empire has. Uh, but the, the mule story is going to uh, is going to not only is it going to turn everything on its head, but it's also going to allow Asimov to bring the second foundation in to the story for the first time. So all stuff to look forward to. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Quinn Blumenfeld for editing the episode. Also, we'd like to credit the music, which is used by a Creative Commons license. It's called It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Goodbye from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.